Hi, this is Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast. Welcome to the Google Teacher Podcast Archive. I used to produce and edit the Google Teacher Podcast, hosted by Matt Miller and Casey Bell. You can enjoy the podcast once again, and be sure to visit the new website, chrisnessy.com slash googleteacherpod. Please note that any of the show note links mentioned in the episodes are no longer valid, but if you go to chrisnessy.com, dot com slash Google Teacher Pod, you can search the archive and check out the show notes for each and every episode of the Google Teacher Podcast. Thank you for your continued support, and may the Googles be with you. I'm Jake Miller from the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect those of others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to episode 123 of the Google Teacher Podcast, your source for the latest Google for Education news, tips, tricks, and ideas you can use in class tomorrow. I'm Casey Bell from Shake Up Learning. And I'm Matt Miller from Digital Textbook, and now I'm singing ABC, easy, one, two, three. I know. I was like, I didn't even think about it while I was typing it, but I couldn't say 123. It's just, it's one, episode 123. It's too easy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now if you've got that song stuck in your head, then you can blame me. So um, so in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about meaningful group work with Google tools, especially whenever we're in those you know remote and hybrid learning environments. And we still want students to be able to do group work. Uh, there's some good ways that we can use our Google tools to do that. And of course, they can support face-to-face group work. Uh, we've also got Google News and Updates. We've got a really good tip actually in the mailbag and some things from the blogosphere to share. So Casey, you ready to go? Let's do it. It's time for some Google news and updates. So this one is a little bit different and will not apply probably to everyone. But for those of you who have iPhones. There are a few new features that you will find that Google has made available. And I just got the iPhone 12 Pro, not the giant one, not the Max, but the 12 Pro. I'm playing with it. And one of the things that I already had discovered that I really like are the personalized widgets. Now, yes, I know all you Google phone people already had this, (laughs) but it's brand new to me. So I had a lot of fun playing with it. And I just realized based on this post from the keyword blog that Google is making some of their apps available in those widgets on the iPhone. So yes, Google does like to play well with others, unlike Apple. So (laughs) we can put Google Photos on there as a widget. That's actually what I've been looking at the past week. And it's like having a little photo um, frame, you know, like those frames we all had with our our photos just kind of uh, shuffling throughout the day. And now when I pick up my phone, I see a new photo and it really 
is kind of sweet. It reminds me of different memories and things I've done, even some of the presentations and conferences that I've done. And it's just a nice little way to see some of those memories pop up on your screen. So that's one thing that you can do now on um, your iPhone. And it's new on iOS. I don't believe that this is just new to this particular model. I think this is part of the iOS update as well. You can also add the YouTube music widget if anybody uses um, YouTube music. And you can add the search widget as well to get quick access to Google Lens, Incognito, voice search, and all of that right there at your fingertips. So that's pretty cool. I'm not going to read all of these. Some of these get really specific. There's some things that you can now do on your Apple Watch as well with the Google applications like Google Maps and YouTube Music and choosing your favorite email provider, which we could do that before. So I'm not quite sure why that one was listed there. But they have added some additional privacy features like privacy screen that will use Face ID or Touch ID on your iOS device and help hopefully protect you. I feel like the more conveniences we get out of these devices, the more we're giving up in privacy to allow these things to work. And um, I don't know, I'm a little bit torn about some of this and how much information I, I am sharing and putting out there, but I do love my gadgets. So I have had fun with the new iPhone and especially with the camera situation, because the camera was a pretty big upgrade from what I had on the the 10s. So anyway, if anybody else is using these, you want to share uh, share with the other iPhone users out there. Let us know. I, that's so interesting what you're saying about privacy. I almost feel like privacy is kind of like a currency these days. And it's like sometimes you you spend, and I, I don't know if this is a good comparison. I don't know. I've never really bounced this off of anybody else, but it seems like the more that you spend, sometimes the more that you get. So you can either be you know like very stingy with your privacy and not get as much stuff back. Now, whether the companies should be treating our privacy that way, that's a whole different discussion for a whole different day. But yeah, that's that's really interesting that you bring that up. And yeah, some of us that are like, you know, Google Pixel users like me, you know, we've, we've had some of this stuff before, but we're not going to rub that in anybody's face. <laughs> you know, I feel like I get too far in. I think I've said this before. I probably even said this on here. I have so many uh, Apple devices, like hardware, but I do still typically prefer the um, the software of of Google for a lot of different things. So combining those those two worlds. But I also feel like I've invested so much money. Like I don't know if I can turn back. <laughs> like everything works together, and it would be a big. It would be a big leap, and especially because my family is also all on Apple devices and some advantages that we have to that, too. No, I totally get that. I'm sort of the same way with my with my Pixel phone now. But anyway, that's that's maybe a whole different maybe mobile devices is a different uh, episode. episode? For a different day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so let's keep moving. Um, I wanted to tell you about transformation reports. If you're not familiar with this, um, uh, the the news related to this is that Google for Education transform transformation reports the window is now open and so um, you know what this what this basically is transformation reports are this free tool designed to help quantify an organization's Google for Education implementation across all the products and programs so basically what Google is doing is it's giving you this dashboard um, this kind of like toolkit 
to see how you're using Google products across the board in different ways. They're tied to those seven key areas of transformation that are part of the Transformation Center. This is something I'm, I'm still sort of learning about, too, which includes things like vision, culture, technology, funding and sustainability, community engagement, learning, professional development. Those are the seven areas. And so basically what Google uh, seems to be doing here is gathering analytics, you know, gathering data that back up all of those seven areas. And then they give you customized suggestions for how you can get more out of Google. So this is a little more on the admin side and less on the classroom teacher side, although the data that you would get out of it would be really interesting you know, for those of us that are using it. So um, anyway, these are, it says that they're available to all K-12 districts and schools in the United States free of charge. It says that they're only available in English right now. So it looks like we're still sort of early days when it comes to all of that. And there's a link in the show notes where you can, um, nope, that's on the older one. Anyway, there are still links in the show notes where you can learn more about this. But it does seem like, you know, if you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your Google tools, that this could give you some really good recommendations. I'm really interested to see how this gets implemented and how accurate it will be. I like the fact that they're connecting it back to that transformation center, which has been around for a while, but you don't hear a lot of talk about it or people doing that much with it. So I'm interested to see how they make these connections. And from the blog post that's on the G Suite Updates blog, it does say super admins must log in to the transformation report tool between November 2nd and November 20th to generate the report. I have no idea why there's such a short timeline with that. And it says don't take the survey or share the survey. But then under that, it tells you who to give the survey to. So there is a survey tool that's part of this. It's not just trying to randomly read how many times something was logged into or comments left here or there. So I am interested in this, that I've seen different tools over the years to try to evaluate our technology use, you know, what students know, what teachers know, where are the gaps. And I hope this is something that will be useful like that. I, I kind of feel like it's got a long ways to go, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Our next topic here has to do with... Um, maybe my least favorite topic, and that is Microsoft Office. So we all have Microsoft Office files, whether they are really, really old, or because we are in a situation where we're using both tools. And I don't mean that there's anything wrong with using it. It's just a personal preference. And because I have had so many frustrations, even today, I have lost information that I had to type in a Word document, <laughs> driving me crazy. But the fact that we can save those files in Google Drive and edit them using Google Docs or whichever tools that is. So we've got Docs and Slides and Slides would be for PowerPoint and Sheets um, would be for Excel, but it's now the default. So when you open a document from Drive that is a Microsoft Office file, it will default to open in the Google version of it so that you can edit that. So that's handy. I think that is what most people would choose to do. However, you can still download it. You can still open it in an external application if that's what works. This was a pretty simple little update, but worthwhile because we have so many teachers who have so many Office files that we do need to update and occasionally convert as well. And it's, it's so nice that now we're able to just like pop that open, edit it, 
and then like stick it back into a document and send it away. I remember, you know, early days on that, it was like you either had to have Word or Office, you know, on your device or, you know, there were all of these crazy workarounds and everything. So thank goodness that they're they're definitely streamlining that. Uh, the last one we've got to share, I kind of feel like maybe we're burying the lead here, so to speak, like we're putting <laughs> one of the best ones at the end, because this is one that I think a lot of us have been begging for and waiting for um, in the uh, video conferencing realm, especially when we've seen what what has been available in Zoom. But now it's going to, well, either now or very soon, you're going to be able to replace your background in Google Meet. Yep, let me say that one more time. You can replace your background in Google Meet. So you can stick a different background in. You can upload your own image. You can choose some stuff that's already there. So um, it says that rapid release domains should be getting that really right now by the time you um, by the time you see this. And then even the scheduled release domains, the ones that take a little bit longer, that should be starting on November 6th. So by the time you hear this, some of those should be rolling out. So if you don't have it yet, it should be coming soon. And where you want to look for it is when you're joining a call, there will be a little icon down on the bottom right-hand corner. It's just a little icon of a person with, you know, kind of like a, a grayed out background behind them, like little lines for the, the gray part. And then even if you get inside the call, you can click the um, three dots menu button and there will be an option that says change background. So um, finally, 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 that one is coming to Google. So... If uh, you want to learn more about any of these things we've talked about so far, you can certainly head to our show notes at googleteacherpodcast.com slash one, two, three. So today we're going to be talking about meaningful ways to do group work with Google tools. And this was sort of spurred on from a message that we received from Patty Young from Cornwall, New York. She says that this year has been a struggle for teachers and their traditional ways of teaching. Um, like her, she's a fifth grade teacher. And she says, my district is using blended learning. We have two cohorts, a Tuesday, Thursday, and a Wednesday, Friday. She says, I love group work, and I'm really struggling on how to make it work this year. If you or your listeners have any ideas on how to do group work, I would love to try it. Can't wait to hear some new ideas. So Casey and I were thinking, let's just devote an entire episode to this. So she, uh, Casey and I have kind of brainstormed some ideas of our own. And then, of course, as you listen to this, as your, your mind is kind of going on this, we would love to continue to share more ideas about this. So Casey and I are going to share some things. Um, but you definitely, if, if you're interested in sharing, please do go to googleteacherpodcast.com and leave us a voice message or, um, you know, tweet to the GT pod hashtag. But this, I mean, this really is a big issue, especially if you're doing remote learning or hybrid learning, you know, there's, um, it's just not as easy or even in face to face with social distancing group work just isn't quite the same as it used to be. And I know some teachers have even struggled to do really meaningful group work, even when everything is sort of as normal. So, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of an important topic and um, one where I think some sensible use of Google tools could really help. Right, Casey? Absolutely. And we feel your pain because, Patty, you are not alone. There are so many teachers facing this. And I know you mentioned you're using a blended learning model, and that means so many things to so many different people. 
I'm guessing that you have a few different things going on. You probably have that combination of those face-to-face kiddos with the online as so many teachers are trying to do two jobs or four right now. And the first thing that I want everybody to think about is what is your purpose in grouping students? You know, are they truly working together? Are they collaborating? Or is it more on the cooperative side? You know, defining those things and defining group roles is really important to make sure that this is meaningful. I know in my classroom, when I first started teaching and everybody's like, oh, they should be working together. And it became like, hey, Miss Bell, can we do our worksheet together? And (laughs) that is not exactly what we're talking about here. We want to make sure that whatever they're doing in a group makes sense to do in a group. And it's not just because we want to do group work, but we want to make sure that it has that purpose behind it and that it is aligned to our learning goals. One of the things that I learned um, very Uh, much credit to Catelyn Tucker on this is she did share with me um, on a on episode 85 of the Shake Up Learning Show, she talked about some ways that we can make these things work in this moment. And one thing that she suggested that I really didn't think about is the fact that even those in-class kids can be in those groups when they're not sitting together by using things like Google Meet and Zoom. And it's not perfect. It's not pretty. We need probably some headphones, but that social distancing that Matt was talking about makes it difficult to actually put the desk together and to, you know, use our little U-shaped tables and things like that to bring those kids in. So those tools that we tend to think are only for those online kids can actually bring everybody together in one setting, even though they're, they may be in the same room, but being able to communicate a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a, a really valid point that having some of those digital spaces to be able to communicate, you know, whether they're still together and socially distanced or if they're they're apart, that that makes a, an awful lot of sense. Um, I actually wanted to kind of connect back to a uh, post that was published on the Ditch That Textbook blog by Esther Park, um, who is a teacher that was trying to kind of make sense of these Google Meet you know, sort of collaboration spaces, uh, especially before the official breakouts, breakout rooms were started to starting to be released. And of course, now, you know, we're, we're increasingly getting those breakout rooms and they're, they're starting to, to work. But what she would do was she would create a whole bunch of different Google Meet calls that students could jump into. And uh, whether you do it that way or use the breakout rooms, I really like the way that she, that she set it up. And maybe, you know, this could be a part of your overall strategy and your overall plan for doing group work is to think about, are there any breakout rooms or are there any, you know, kind of like digital spaces like that that you can create? And so what Esther wrote was that she had a couple of different ways to do this. Like she made a breakout room that she called the teacher help room. Now, granted, this one isn't so much for the group work part, but, um, you know, the the teacher is active in this particular uh, video conference room. And so students can pop in and pop out and ask questions. But then she had this thing called the open group room where she had a group where if students wanted to jump in and they wanted to be able to talk out loud and interact and, you know, maybe have their cameras on and definitely use their microphones. She says, this is a room for extroverts. We want to honor their learning styles and offer a virtual space that channels their energy and longing for social connections. 
And then she says, after going over clear expectations and digital citizenship, allow this group to turn on the camera and microphones to collaborate. So that's another way to set up a collaborative space where a group can meet. It's just kind of like thinking about what are the norms and expectations you want to set up for all of this. If you've got the uh, open group room for the extroverts, then you probably aren't surprised to hear that there's a quiet group room too. And Esther says, this is a room where students will collaborate quietly through the chat, ask questions and share ideas. So there's a place where they can live chat with each other, but it's not going to be noisy and the faces and the voices aren't going to be there. She also sets up sometimes uh, what she calls a quiet room. She says, if I were a student, I would be the one power working in this room. This is a virtual space where students can have uninterrupted focused time and peace and quiet. And so that way, you know, that's that's another one where if your school or if your own personal expectations are to have some sort of direct connection to students while they're supposed to be in class, that way, you know, they're connected to a live video, you know, video conference um, I know some schools, whether we agree with it or not, I'm not a big fan of it, but some schools are still trying to measure seat time during virtual learning. And so this is a way to do that, yet still respecting their ability to work quietly on their own. So I thought this was fascinating because she had thought so clearly through the different norms and um, you know, sort of settings and expectations for what those group rooms might look like. I like that. And I like the fact that we're thinking that collaboration doesn't have to be noisy, although it it usually is in a face-to-face situation, but that's also intimidating to a lot of our more introverted students. And so I think some of these strategies will carry on into whatever the new normal is so that we can differentiate so that all students feel comfortable in the setting that they're sharing. And whether that's a small group or that's a larger group that gets a little bit more chaotic, that we can balance that with um, everything else that's going on in our classrooms. Can I, I just want to throw, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I just wanted to throw one quick thing on that. Um, it's it's so fascinating to me, the, the dynamic that there is with typing comments in to interact. You know, like you were just saying that, um, you know, a lot of times we think of collaboration as like, you know, noisy voice chatter among students. I've been doing um, professional development with teachers virtually, um, and I've been using YouTube Live as the way that I've delivered a lot of that. And at first, when I started doing it, I thought, well, man, this is going to be a bummer because I won't get to see them face to face and I won't have that interaction. And the thing that has fascinated me over the last six or seven months that I've been doing this is how many more teachers how much bigger a percentage of teachers are willing to type a comment into one of those video chats than they are to raise their hand or, you know, say something in front of the entire group. And so it's almost like, you know, sometimes I think we give this whole, you know, type a comment type of collaboration and interaction. I think sometimes we give it a bad rap. In reality, sometimes it really does liberate some people to participate in ways that they might not have otherwise. So, um, you know, even if that's the way that it works out for, for your students, you may actually be giving some students a voice to participate in ways that they might not have otherwise. Absolutely. And those students that we thought didn't understand or just didn't want to participate, maybe it just they weren't given the right opportunity. So we can reach students in new ways by using these tools. Totally agree with that. Um, another thing that I have used over the years. And I have done this with my students, but I've done this with adults as well. And that's 
collaborative note-taking. And this is a strategy that goes back to a really old story with Alan November, where um, he introduced this idea at a conference and we were in a big ballroom. And when you're about to listen to a keynote by Alan November, everybody wants to take notes, right? But before we got started, he introduced this idea and he said, I need four people to take notes today. And you're going to take notes for everybody. But each of the four people are assigned a different thing to take notes on, you know, so it might be new vocabulary, it might be important dates, it might be links, it might be different things. Well, my team threw me under the bus that day and (laughs) volunteered me to take notes. So I experienced this firsthand. I'm like, this is brilliant. You know, this is a great way to facilitate because what happens is if Matt and I are sitting in that ballroom listening to this wonderful keynote, what he takes away and what I take away could still be very different. But if we have notes that we have taken together, we're getting the collective knowledge of the entire group and we're thinking through things in different ways. Plus, as the teacher or the facilitator, you get to look in on what your students are taking notes on to see, okay, are they getting it? Do they understand? Are they picking up on the things that I want them to understand through this? And I know just from teaching <laughs> how to take notes in middle school, y'all, it is it is not easy to get students to understand what to take notes on. And most of the time they would just take down every single thing that you wrote on the board or on your transparency or whatever you had projected on the screen. And you try to teach them to listen for those important cues. And this is a good way to practice that. Plus guess what? The rest of the class isn't checking out. They're helping. So if somebody misses something, then they're going to catch it. They're also learning how to use the tool during that time without you explicitly teaching it. So I have a a blog post I recently updated because I posted this way back, I think back in 2014 originally, and updated it with some some new thoughts and some new steps so that we can integrate this together. And of course, this is a great thing to do, whether you're in a face-to-face classroom and you've got students with devices or in this online blended thing that we find ourselves in so that students can can do that at the same time. And it doesn't have to be in docs. I like docs as a first step because it's easy. I usually create a table so that students know exactly where they type the notes and we don't have that situation where they're typing on top of each other, which I've always said, get students together in a document, show them what it's like to be in a collaborative document. I can't tell you how many times I have done this strategy with teachers and they have never been in a document that had more than two people at a time. It's an experience that we all need to have because this is a 21st century work skill. This is how the world operates. And knowing how to do that, knowing what it looks like, the chaos that ensues, the sandbox that they need, they need some playtime, and they're all going to learn lots of different things along the way as they are learning the content and taking those notes. I've, I've been in the same situation where, um, you know, we'll get into a collaborative, you know, some, you can do this with a collaborative slideshow too. I actually kind of like that as a good collaborative space because it does separate everybody off if everybody has their own slide. You know, it's kind of like your own little piece of, of digital real estate. And I've done this with teachers before. And just like you said, there's a little bit of chaos that ensues. Sometimes with some of them, their initial impulse is to say, this is too chaotic. Oh, this is getting messed up. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to use this. But the truth is, is that once you get a handle on how to operate inside of those spaces, it can be transformational, you know, because it really does 
allow us to all work in the same space where we can see what everybody else is doing. Now, of course, when you're in a collaborative space like that, you also have to think about what the task is, because if you want them to recall specific facts or answer certain questions, having a collaborative space like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we're doing, you know, we're checking accuracy of recall in that case. And we don't want students, you know, have one of them type the answers and then the others are just going and and copying it. Um, a lot of these collaborative spaces I found are, are best when you're doing things that doesn't don't have a specific right or wrong answer. If you're writing something, if you're giving your takeaways on something, if you're creating something, that's a place where all of these um, collaborative spaces are really good. So whether you're using slides or if you're using a simple document, this, of course, certainly works inside of uh, sheets as well. Um, and you can have multiple tabs. I think our, our good friend Alice Keeler, the queen of the spreadsheets, would probably prefer to do it that way, um, where you could have different tabs for each student. But um, what's neat about it is that with these documents, um, those can be, well, I say documents, again, slide sheets, whatever. I'm just going to use the word documents for this, what I'm talking about here. Um, you could set up a document that could be the workspace and collaboration space to create something else. Here's what I mean by that. You could take a document and set up different sections within it that are the steps that you want students to pro progress through or the questions that you want them to think about or whatever. And then that little section of the document, maybe it's separated with uh, horizontal lines. You can go to insert horizontal line. Um, maybe it's set up by headings and you could throw a table of contents at the top and, um, you know, that way, you know, they could click down to the, the different section. But Basically, you have these different sections within the document. And then if everybody jumps in, everybody's able to type their thoughts all in the same place. And then, of course, if you want to talk about something that someone has written, you just highlight that part and insert a comment. And so by putting that collaborative workspace together and imagine you have kind of like five steps that you want students to work through. Just make five sections in the document. And then whenever you assign it out on Google Classroom, um, you know, you can just, uh, you know, well, uh, you could make a copy for each student. I don't know. Um, you might have them all go into, you know, figure out which document they're going to go into. There's different ways that you can make this work. Um, but anyway, if you set up that one collaborative space where they can all work through things and that can even be their thinking space before they create the final product, they could create the final product in a different app. Like they can make a slide presentation. Um, but they can use that document as they're thinking and working and collaborating space because that's kind of the gold of group work, isn't it? Is whenever they're able to interact and t hash things out and disagree and come to you know a, a shared decision about how they want to move forward, um, that can be their space to do that. And then they can even do that in another app. So um, you know, there's there's that that's it's kind of one of the amazing things about Google in general is how easy collaboration is, real-time collaboration is, and it really does make it feel like, in some ways, you're working shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder in the same personal space. And I've always said that the number one selling point of Google Tools is the collaborative features because they are still pretty hard to beat anywhere else. That you know, We have collaboration in other tools, but I have yet to see anything that works quite as well as, as it works in Google. And I just have one other quick idea that I wanted to share before we wrap things up. And this one is, of course, from Catlin Tucker again. And she has shared in 
many different ways over the years, her station rotation model. And I always quickly remind people that stations are not just for the little kids, that this can be used at any grade level. And what I liked about her adaptation for the hybrid model was she is including a teacher-led station. So she's getting in that small group instruction and she's got an online station, but there's also an offline station. So as we are all spending way too much time on our screens, it is important to remember to build those pieces in. And what I ask her in the podcast, which I think this answer was so brilliant, is, okay, how do you document the offline piece, right? Especially when we've got administrators breathing down our necks for seat time and making sure that students are actually there. So even if they are there and a camera is on, they're not working on the screen. They're doing something else, hopefully more hands-on and documenting it as if they are making a documentary. They are, you know, taking pictures with their camera or they're recording videos or they're doing those things so that that evidence can then be uploaded into Google Classroom or wherever you are collecting student work. So I love the fact that she's embedded those things, that we're still getting those teacher touch points, but we're having those stations, which would be like a breakout. And the station doesn't have to be a physical station location in the room anymore. It can simply be the directions that are posted online or in a document somewhere. Another thing that's brilliant about it to me, at least, is that that gives you some variety. It gives you some contrast, you know, so you're still getting some of that instruction. You're able to go offline, you're able to go online. And so it doesn't feel like you're stuck in the rut. So pretty much anything, Casey and I were talking about this offline, pretty much anything that you can learn from Catlin Tucker is pure gold. So, um, so glad that you dropped that in at the end of this section. So Patty Young, thank you so much for your question and for bringing this up. Um, and for giving us an opportunity to kind of think through and talk through this. So hopefully some of that is useful to you. Uh, Casey and I have dropped all sorts of links to more stuff. If you want to dig deeper into this idea of meaningful group work with Google tools, then you can go to our show notes where you can find some tools to make this happen, um, some blog posts, and you can go, you know, super deep dive if you want to. And of course, that again is at googleteacherpodcast.com slash one, two, three. There's a letter in your mailbox. Hey, you know what? This is all your mail. Hey, maybe I'll give you a call sometime. You've got mail. Okay, y'all, let's jump into the mailbag with my girl, Jen Giffen. And Jen left us a really brilliant idea in a, a speak pipe message. So take it away, Jen. Hi, Matt and Casey. It is Jen Giffen at Virtual GIF. Um, I wanted to comment on something that I heard this week on the show, someone was asking about integrating a Zoom link into Google Classroom. Um, and of course, there was no integration, like Casey said, but there is a little bit of a workaround. If you go to the gear and go, which is where you're going to find your class settings, um, you'll see class name, class description, section, room, and subject. If you put under subject, like Zoom link, and then the link, it will actually show up in the header of your Google Classroom. Now, it's not a live hyperlink, but it's certainly something that could be cut and pasted and is a cut, cut and pasted, cut it and paste. You get what I mean. And it could certainly then be copied into um, another tab so that students always have quick, easy access to it. It's not perfect, but it is a workaround. Love this. Love this. Love this. Would have never thought about that subject area. In fact, 
I tend to skip that when I'm creating a new class, but it doesn't have to be what Google says it's supposed to be. So yeah, you could drop that link or other information that you want in your header right there. I do wish that links could be clickable, but again, you know, we're still begging for making up all of our own favorite features in Google Classroom, but that's a great little workaround if you want to use that to put your Zoom link in Google Classroom. All right, we've got a couple of quick things that we want to share with you, some new resources from our blogs, just in case you haven't caught them. I've got an updated post called 20 Virtual Field Trips for Your Classroom. Virtual Field Trips is another one of those, Casey was saying earlier that blended learning can have lots of different definitions. Virtual Field Trips, those can also have many different definitions too. So if you're looking for some things to do with your students, and let me tell you, virtual field trips are kind of a cool thing especially for remote learning, because sometimes you can do these live video calls that you can have your students do during remote learning. But then there's also some things you can do where you share your screen, where it kind of feels like a virtual field trip. So we've got lots of ideas there. And then I also wanted to mention all of these resources we've been sharing recently about digital escape rooms. If you're excited about digital escape rooms and want to learn how to do them, the process is not that complicated if you got a good framework for it. So we just recently released a new mini online course called Getting Started with Digital Escape Rooms. It's created by Carly Mora, who is the uh, blog editor at Ditch That Textbook. She's a a tech teacher on special assignment uh, over in California, and she is obsessed with digital escape rooms. So she's got a great guide, a whole bunch of really good tutorial videos in that. Um, And then we've also got a blog post uh, that you can access for free, of course, uh, that has some links to some pre-made digital escape rooms and some supports for you to kind of think through how to how to plan your own. So all of that stuff, all all good stuff on the blog there. And I have a few things to share as well. I also updated an older post about Google Classroom comments. So I took a deep dive into all of the various places that you can leave comments, what you use them for, how to find them, can students use them? all of those things, because it gets really confusing. And with us needing this feature so desperately in online learning, I wanted to make sure that we had some clarification on where those things can happen and how to use all of those tools that are built into Google Classroom and the grading tool and class comments and private comments and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, it's all there. (laughs) The other thing that I recently did a podcast episode on was the Applied Digital Skills platform from Google. And if you haven't visited Applied Digital Skills ever or recently, you need to give it another look because these are free, ready-to-go, asynchronous lessons that you can use and assign through Google Classroom. So it's a really powerful tool. It's super handy, especially in this moment when we need all the help we can get. So um, I went into that. There are lessons for students. There are training lessons for teachers as well. There's even an entire section on how to teach from anywhere and giving those tips. There's even some tips and things for parents and guardians. So definitely check that out. And um, just a quick note that I am putting the final edits on my books as we speak. So um, if you're interested in learning more about the book and the supplement that is about to come out before the end of the year, fingers crossed, go to blendedlearningwithgoogle.com and you can sign up for updates, learn more about the launch team and all the various things that are coming. 
And so if you want to get links to all of those to check them out, you can head to our show notes at googleteacherpodcast.com slash 123. Well, Matt, I think this turned out to be a pretty good episode. You know, we start brainstorming and we put these things together and sometimes the conversations take us new places. And I appreciate that so much in working with you and collaborating with you in our partnership here. So I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode and that you're getting some new ideas on how to make group work more meaningful in your classroom, no matter where or how you happen to be teaching in this moment. If you've been listening to us for a little while and you haven't subscribed, would you subscribe? And if you know somebody else who might benefit from hearing the Google Teacher Podcast, we would love it if you would share that with them. Uh, That wraps up yet another episode. And so we will see you on the next episode of the Google Teacher Podcast. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening to the Google Teacher Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts and by visiting our website, googleteacherpodcast.com. Join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag GTPod. Until next time, keep harnessing that G Suite power and may the Googles be with you. Thank you once again for listening to the Google Teacher Podcast Archive. For the latest on Matt Miller, be sure to visit his website, ditchthattextbook.com. For the latest on Casey Bell, be sure to visit her website, shakeuplearning.com. And to keep up with me and get the latest in education technology, be sure to visit my website, chrisnessy.com. And I invite you to listen to the House of EdTech Podcast.